Greetings, all you 99 percenters, 1 percenters, 99, whatever. We're 99. Okay, let's take a step back today, show, and look at the global economy. Globally, you know, we've got this strange spin coming out of Washington that says, oh, we're going to have a soft landing, right? Well, we're kind of revisiting, I guess, the soft landing theme here, maybe on a global scale. Uh, but I also want to talk about soft landing on a U.S. scale. And that's what I addressed in my most recent posted on my blog article called the latest CPI numbers. Uh with a subtitle that the soft landing plane is still circling. Yeah, the recent numbers, uh, inflation numbers, CPI came out this week and it showed that, whoops, inflation's not coming down. And in fact, there are signs it's creeping back up. Well, that was kind of like a curveball that threw uh, at the politicians in the media, they didn't expect that. They expected, well, it would continue to come down. Soft landing, of course, is defined as inflation moderating and economic growth remaining positive. In other words, not contracting, no recession and no continued inflation, but we know inflation, in fact, I'll go over the numbers, the numbers show that inflation uh, rose here, as far as the CPI is concerned, last month, January, particularly on the services side. Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll return to, I want to talk about the global economy first a little bit, because we also have this anomaly of uh, the U.S. is growing. You know, GDP 2.5% is growing when the rest of the world is slowing. Now, how can you continue that? Can the U.S. continue to have positive economic growth when the rest of the world, particularly the big economies of the world in Europe, Japan, China, are slowing? Hmm? Well, that's certainly going to impact the U.S. economy because U.S. export sales to the rest of the world are going to go down. That's for sure. And you're going to have countries like China lowering its prices to sell to the U.S., Europe too, right? And that will mean more imports by the U.S., and those two items, ex exports, imports, falling U.S. exports to the world and rising U.S. imports from the world will give us an increasingly negative, what they call net exports and GDP. Net exports, which has been a drag on GDP, is going to increase significantly in 2024. So, that's going to pull down GDP, no doubt. So it's important whether economies in the rest of the world are weakening, 
or remaining strong or even growing because we have this double whammy effect here of declining U.S. exports. You know, if their economies are are slowing down, people in those economies aren't going to buy as many U.S. exports and vice versa. They're going to want to compete, particularly China here. They're going to lower their prices, which means U.S. will buy consumers will buy more imports, all things equal. And both of them together exacerbate that category of net exports. You see, GDP has four main categories. You know, one is consumer spending, about two-thirds of the economy. The biggest element within consumer spending is retail sales. And uh, business investment. And uh, the biggest, well, there's a couple big elements in business investment. Business is spending on structures. In other words, factories or office buildings or you know, hotels and theme parks, warehouses and stuff like that, and on plant and equipment, you know, machinery, et cetera. And then there's the third category added here about a decade ago called uh, intellectual property. Well, if you look at the U.S. GDP, business investment in terms of plant and equipment is flat, not doing so well. And on top of that, uh, business structures are in a funk. You're not seeing any building on offices, new office buildings. In fact, there's a glut, and it, it's a source of potential financial instability. And I saw a report about warehousing got overproduced, so warehousing is not uh, going to add anything. And hotels, ditto. Theme parks, I don't know. It's not that big. The only thing growing in structures, business structures, is factories. Yeah, there's some evidence of uh, the big bribes that Biden administration threw at uh, businesses to come back to the U.S. is resulting in some expansion. In other words, this government finance expansion. You know, we give $52 billion to these profitable semiconductor chip factories, $52 billion, big bribe to come back. We're going to rebuild. We're going to build. We're going to give them $52 billion to build their factories, right? You know, it's an indirect government huge subsidy. And that's the only way you get them to do investment, real investment anymore, is that you pay them for it. And that, of course, adds big, big time to the annual budget deficit and the national debt <clears throat> when the government does that. So, okay, you look at the U.S. and business investment, those two main categories, the plant and equipment and business structures, very weak. You look at the U.S. economy in terms of consumer spending, and we just got a report out here this week as well on U.S. retail sales don't look good. No. U.S. retail sales actually slow down in the fourth, third quarter, fourth quarter. I don't know. Let me check here. Retail sales. <clears throat> shrunk in January 
by 0.8%. That's one month, you know. So if you annualize that, that'd be like almost 10% drop if it continues at that every month for the rest of this year. That's a big drop in retail sales. You know, two-thirds of the economy, 10% drop. Mm, that's big. Of course, I don't think it's going to do that unless we have a, a big recession here. But retail sales, you know, dropped almost 1% in January alone. Then you look at December. What happened in December, retail sales? You know, that's supposed to be the big holiday boost, right? Retail sales in December. Oh, they rose 0.4%. So you have a four-tenths of 1% growth in December and an eight-tenths of 1% collapse in January. Well, what about November and October? November was zero for retail sales growth. October was a negative 0.3%. So the fourth quarter last year, you know, flat to negative, and then we have a big contraction here in January. And remember, retail sales, I don't know, was a third, fourth of, of all of uh, consumer spending, which is two-thirds of GDP, the biggest category, GDP. And if you look at it, uh, the composition of that retail sales, areas that were clearly contracting were autos, gasoline, electronics, clothing, sports equipment, home improvement, and even online spending declined. What went up in terms of retail sales? Oh, groceries went up and restaurants went up. Are, are people buying more groceries? Hmm? All of a sudden, they're buying more groceries. Uh, they're drinking more, going to bars more, eating out more. No, no. That's price increases going on. Because retail sales are not adjusted for inflation. So these numbers in the U.S. of retail sales down almost 1% in January is not adjusted for inflation. If you added an inflation adjustment to that, it would be down 5%, 4 to 5% in one month. Yeah, you know, the administration kept pumping up, oh, retail sales look so good. You know, we're going to have a soft landing. Retail sales are so good throughout most of the last year. But they never tell you it's not adjusted for inflation. Those numbers are all price increases. Yeah, price increases. Groceries, restaurants and bars, furniture. They're jacking up the prices, folks. Price gouging going on. Oh, yeah, it's even got into the media, you know. I mean, Biden says, oh, shrinkflation going on. Shrinkflation. What was that? Oh, when you go and you get groceries, particularly processed foods, right? Uh, the bag inside the cereal box is smaller. <laughs> they don't even lower the cereal box anymore because that would be too obvious, right? They just give you a smaller bag inside. And half of it is, is empty air, right? And that goes on with all kinds of processed foods. You look at inflation in groceries, it's the processed foods. You know, not the fruit and vegetables and things like that. Not the milk, not even the eggs anymore. It's all processed stuff. 
What was the biggest processed food item that went up? Indian CPI this past week? Uh, juices and beverages. Yeah, up like 20%. Right. Processed. It's all processed. Well, why is it processed foods always going up? Uh, because those are big corporations that control the market. You know, your, your milk and eggs, that's local stuff. Right? Here in California, we don't buy chickens from upstate New York. We buy them from California, right? And there's a lot of chicken farmers. Well, even that's getting concentrated. You know, Purdue and those boys are trying to, at least back east, they're trying to grab it all. Anyway, it's uh, monopolistic companies. Monopolistic means there's, you know, a half a dozen maybe of companies or less that are controlling the market. They can control supply. Right. And therefore, you know, they collude and they raise their prices. Well, that's why food prices are going up. It's processed foods, it's corporations, it's monopolies. Monopoly is one, but monopolistic means, you know, a small number. Small enough that they all follow each other's lead and raise their prices. Right. I use cereal because that's the most obvious one. Baked goods. Bakery goods, you know, General Mills and those boys. Yeah, so retail sales look pretty weak, which is the almost a third or more of consumer spending. What's the other part of consumer spending? Well, autos, but we see that's going down. Yeah, they've been jacking up the price of autos. You know, an average auto now over the last four years will cost you ten to fifteen thousand dollars more for the same thing. And by the way, uh, that is underestimated in the CPI. Why? Oh, because the CPI, as I've said before, has this strange practice. These bureaucrats at the Labor Department that put together the CPI, Consumer Price Index, a strange thing, you know. What they do is they lower the price they use in calculating CPI for autos, or cell phones, or computers, because they say, well, the quality has increased. I mean, you're paying more in the real world, but they're saying, no, you're not paying that much because the quality has increased. It's called hedonic pricing. I'll be talking about that more in my next article. Uh, I got a series of articles planned here. The first one just came out, the latest CPI, why the, uh, you know, the soft landing plane is still circling. In other words, it hasn't landed yet. Prices aren't coming down in the latest indicator, right? Yeah. In fact, if you look at the prices in the indicator, CPI, this past week, what do we see? We see an overall inflation of 3%, they say, 3%. Of course, we know that's low-balled. And in my next article, I'll be talking about why it's lowballed and giving examples by the assumptions that are used in the CPI even underestimate its, its impact. This is higher than 3%. But the point I'm making is that the 3% of last month or this past week for January, right, is the same as it was back in July of 23. 3% hasn't come down. The same thing. If you slice and dice the CPI, you know, 
The 3% is what I call the, or what's called the all items, all services, all goods, you know, headline inflation, which includes energy and more volatile, you know, gasoline and fuel oil and so forth and food. That's part of all items. All items, the 3% is divided into headline and core. Headline inflation is everything, including, you know, the highly volatile energy and food. Core inflation is everything except energy and food, right? But core inflation is stuck at 4% too for the last seven months. All items is stuck at 3%. Now what's come down is goods, goods inflation, things, right? Uh, mostly uh, gasoline right? and fuel. You know, that's what's called a non-durable. I, I mean, a, yeah, a non-durable. You, you consume it when you use it, right? As opposed to a car, which, you know, you don't consume it when you drive it, except over a long period of time and depreciates, right? <clears throat> but food and energy, you consume them right away. Well, those prices have come down. Some food prices, unprocessed food has come down. You know, remember when milk and eggs were going through the roof, right? Well, that's come down, uh, but processed foods have not come down. But, you know, gasoline has come down. Oh, that's the only area where we have any real weakening of uh, consumer prices. Goods, certain goods. Not all goods, certain goods. Okay. So core inflation is stuck at 4% since mid last year. All items is stuck at 3% since mid last year, and we got a little bit of, a, of an improvement on the good side. That's the picture. But services, services have may, remained stuck at five to five and a half percent. And services is 80% of the economy. And they haven't come down since the middle of last year. I, I dice in my article there, you know, on my blog, jackarasmus.com, you can also pick it up at LA Progressive or Counterpunch or places like that, Z, Z Network, et cetera. I looked at this in detail, this last report, and then looked at it in relationship to inflation in general over the last uh, couple years. And what you see is very clearly inflation, which was in 2021, driven by supply-side forces, very clearly supply-side driven. What's that? Oh, supply chain. That was a big problem everywhere. You know, even in services, even in milk and eggs and stuff. Yeah, that was a big problem everywhere. That was just price gouging. That was a big factor. Supply chains and price gouging. Productivity had collapsed. And when that happens, businesses, unit labor costs rise and they try to pass it on to the purchaser, the consumer. That was going on. That's a supply side thing. And then we had uh, Biden, the Democrats' dumbass strategy of sanctions, which just drove up global commodity prices coming out of 2021, just as we had all that uh, unpent, un, unspent demand. You know, when people couldn't buy services, 
coming out of 2021. The economy opened in 2021, and that's when we had the big surge because we had supply problems, not just global supply chains and shipping and so forth, but we had uh, problems trying to get the workers back. Remember that? Yeah. A problem of uh, domestic labor supply. Supply again, right? You know, the government spent $900 billion throwing money at businesses in what was called the Payroll Protection Program, $900 billion, so they would keep their workers on the job during the COVID shutdown. But what did these companies do? They took the damn money and they laid people off anyway. They didn't keep them on a job. I mean, look at the airlines. They got $52 billion from the government in direct subsidy to keep workers on the job. They didn't. And then they couldn't get them back in time. Oh, so they just jacked up their prices in 21, 22. Remember airline prices went through the roof? And they're creeping back up again, folks. But anyway, back then, yeah, that was an example of services, problem in services. But if you look, you know, it was supply problems. It wasn't demand problems. It was supply in 2122. Okay. And then the Fed started raising its interest rates in 22. And that whacked the good sector of the economy, but it hardly dented the services sector of the economy. Raising interest rates just doesn't have the same effect it used to 40 years ago on the services sector. It affects some of the good sector, particularly those that that part that can't really move offshore, you know, like construction and housing and stuff. You can't offshore that. You can offshore manufacturing and some of the other stuff, but not that. Well, higher interest rates will affect that. And we saw it really affect uh, residential housing and commercial real estate really, really whacked that. Higher rates by the Fed, it worked. You know, housing was like a million units sold in 2019. How far did it fall? Well, it fell 50%. It was 500,000. Oh, it's risen since, oh, to 600,000. We're still 40% below where we were. Construction's in a recession, period. Manufacturing is in a stagnation at best. You know, manufacturing purchasing managers indexes were contracting for 11 months last year and only in December, you know, began to uh, level off. So manufacturing and construction, both residential and commercial, right, are in recession and have been. But that's only 20% of the economy, 20% of GDP. The recession hasn't really hit the services sector yet. That's typically how recessions go. You know, they go in the good sector first, <clears throat> then they spill over after a while into the services sector if you get significant unemployment, because that's where most people are employed. Okay, so, uh, you know, we had this big inflationary surge opening the economy in 21, mostly supply side driven. And by the way, the Fed interest rates have no effect on supply side, only on depressing demand. And that's how they, they the Fed, 
tries to bring down inflation. It, it attacks consumers <laughs> and their spending power by layoffs. And then consumer demand weakens and prices come down. But what do you do if the problems is supply side? Doing that, making the victims pay the price of the solution, which is what that is, Fed raising interest rates. Well, that's what, what happened back in 1981-82. You know, Ronald Reagan's uh, Fed, Fed at the time, run by this guy Paul Volcker, raised interest rates to 15%. 15%. Well, that whacked the economy pretty good. It was the worst recession we had since the Great Depression, 82, 83. Yeah, that whacked it. And, and demand, uh, depression, consumer demand, depression brought prices down. Yeah. The problem was supply side and global oil, you know, and the crises over there in Iran and Middle East, that was really what drove it all up. Then it had an impact, secondary impact on inflationary expectations, but inflation was 10%. They brought it back down at the expense of a terrible recession. In other words, make the victim, make the workers and the consumers and the average American pay to bring prices down when it's not really caused by their spending. Well, we got the same thing going on here since COVID right, with the inflationary surge. But, you know, getting the Fed to slow down the economy, create unemployment, is all about depressing demand in order to bring prices down. Well, this time it hasn't worked very well. You know, yeah, they've got good prices down, some of them, but um, they haven't been able to get services prices down. It's a different economy than it was 40 years ago. What's the big difference? Well, financialization. You know, the, the explosion and expansion of financial asset markets and businesses and investors investing in financial assets instead of expanding the real economy. That's the big change, you see. Well, how does that translate into what we're talking about? Well, you know, the Fed throws money at the banks and investors, hoping that they will then, with all this excess money, uh, you know, they will invest it in expanding the real economy. Well, you got this massive financial sector out there, stock markets, bond markets, exchange markets, derivative markets, all that stuff. So the investors and the banks just turn around and throw that money into financial assets instead of the real economy. And you get a big boom in financial assets and you get a stagnation or worse in the real economy. Well, isn't that what happened during COVID and the recovery? Exactly. That's exactly what happened. The stock markets boomed. Billionaires doubled. Not because they made more stuff to sell to people. No, because they speculated in financial assets. That's how they got all their wealth, expansion. Yeah, so financial markets just blew right through the COVID shutdowns. They did great. <laughs> yeah. But the real economy, flat on its back. And the recovery after that, really weak. This is the tepid recovery. Look, what did, what did we see in the two full years after the reopening of the economy, COVID? You know, 
the economy was partly shut down deeply in 2020, still in 2021. So you get the 2022 and three, which is the two full years after the reopening. And what do you get? You get a GDP number of 2.1% in 22 and a 2.5% last year. Well, they say, gee, that looks good. Not when you consider you threw $9 trillion at it in 2021 in fiscal spending and Fed monetary spending. Yeah, the Fed threw $5 trillion at the banks and investors. They didn't need it. They weren't in trouble. It wasn't 2008-9, but he threw at it anyway. $5 trillion and Congress threw $4 trillion. You know, social programs and tax cuts for businesses. Yeah, $9 trillion. And what did we get for that mountain of stimulus? We got a mohill of GDP recovery in 22 and 23. Wow. Think about that. $9 trillion and what did we get? We got a tepid recovery. You know, and now is going to be even weaker in 24. Something's broken, folks. I'll tell you, fiscal and monetary policy are broken because, largely because, two reasons. One, you know, we got this massive financialization going on and uh, it just sucks the money capital into its maw, whether it comes from the Fed or from the government, right? Big problem. And by the way, that's a global beast. <laughs> financial asset financialization is global. You can move the money wherever you want, not just in the U.S. stock market, you know, move it everywhere you want. That's what the investors do. <clears throat> the arbitrage, they move it overnight from one market to the next market, make even more money. Now, so, you know, we, we have this massive injection and a tepid recovery because of financialization. The other thing is we're still throwing trillions of dollars at wars. Trillions of dollars at wars, and uh, meaning uh, the defense sector, Pentagon, which is the core of the defense sector, is getting hand over fist, bigger and bigger. Okay. This fiscal year, it's what, $850 billion? It's $53 billion for the Pentagon alone? And then you got to throw in these other departments where you got defense going on, you know, like the energy department, which is where they bill all the uh, uh, oil use by the U.S. military, the biggest consumer of oil in the world, U.S. military. Atomic Energy Commission, where they're building these new bombs, new nuclear bombs, right? Homeland Security, veterans benefits, which aren't included in defense, Pentagon budget, they're included in social spending, right? That's for past wars. What about the CIA? What about the NSA? All of that. Homeland Security even. All of that is defense spending, which is now like $1.2 trillion of our discretionary budget. You know, the government likes to say, oh, you know, Pentagon spending as a percent of GDP is only 3%. Well, that's the wrong measure. It should be what's the percent of your budget? Because that's what you got to spend. But they like to do this. You know, they like to do ratios 
uh, that are irrelevant in order to get uh, a small number. Doesn't look bad, see? 3% doesn't look bad. But GDP doesn't pay for U.S. defense. The budget pays for U.S. defense. There's a lot of that crap going on in government statistics. Okay, so wars are a big problem in terms of our deficits, our real deficits and debt. How much did we spend on, on defense? Well, Pentagon, let's say. How much did we spend on the Pentagon back in 1980? $143 billion. What are we spending now? $850 billion. Really, $1.2 trillion. Well, in an era of rising interest rates, which has been the case here for the last two years, you know, the Fed issues bonds in order to make up the shortfall between taxes and spending. And of course, we've been cutting taxes since 2001. At the same time, we're increasing all this war spending. How much did we cut taxes? $15 trillion since 2001. How much did we spend on more? It's, uh, eight to nine trillion. Well, there's 24 trillion. That's your $34 trillion national debt. 24 trillion of the 34 trillion national debt. You know, the other 10 trillion is bailing out uh, uh, these two crises, right? Much of which goes tax cuts for the rich. Yeah, 2008, 10, and now 2021. And as I've been saying, you know, that spending of 2021 uh, is continuing, just the composition of it has changed. Instead of going to child care and social programs and unemployment benefits uh, in 2022, uh, Biden uh, took that money and threw more in the pot uh, in terms of uh, uh, three, three bills, three acts, giving money to corporations to invest. My infrastructure bill, one. On top of that, you've got the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIP Act. $1.65 trillion. Well, that hits the budget deficit too. You know? So we still, you know, we, we've got the uh, COVID spending going on, but it's in the form of these investment bills, subsidies to corporations. The financialization is rendering, and this war spending is rendering fiscal monetary policy ineffective, inefficient. Inefficient meaning the amount of money you throw at it, you get less stimulus, the real economy, right? It's inefficient. You got to throw more and more fiscal and monetary stimulus at it to get, you know, a smaller and smaller GDP bang for the buck. That's what's going on. And it's going on because of those two forces, wars and financialization, very clearly. Okay, uh, so, you know, we're talking about the U.S. economy. Doesn't look good in terms of retail sales. Doesn't look good in terms of manufacturing, which is stagnant still. Construction, which is down 40%, or housing, down 40%. Commercial real estate, flat on its back, right? This is the good sector, goods-producing sector. Services are limping along. 
Services have not come down. Prices have not come down for services for seven months. Now, it's interesting, one last comment on monetary policy. When the Fed was raising interest rates from 22 to June of 23, it stopped. Last interest rate hike was in June of 23. It stopped in July. Well, that's when inflation stopped coming down as well. They had sucked out prices as much as they could in the good sector, but it's not high enough at the Fed rate now of 5.5% to suck out inflation in the services sector. Remember that Regan had to raise interest rates to 15% to have an effect on the services sector. Well, they're not going to raise rates to 15%. The Fed is through. The Fed is going to now probably let interest rates stay there for a while. As I've been predicting, you know, there'll be no rate cut in March. There won't be no rate cut in May either, I don't believe. Interest rates will stay high, which means uh, interest rates, private rates will stay high through the summer. By the way, that's going to exacerbate the interest payments on the debt. <laughs> yeah. You know how much we're paying now, interest on the debt? $650 billion a year. A year. It's interest on the debt. Well, who gets that money? The rich folks get it. The bondholders get it. Corporate bondholders, banks, Investors, rich investors, both in the U.S. And, and around the world, they're the ones who get that $650 billion. And you know what the projection is? Interest on the debt? Well, by 2030, it'll be $900 billion. Yeah. $900 billion a year. That's more than the Pentagon gets right now. Yeah. $900 billion. A year, interest on the debt. You know, these economists from this new school called modern money theory say, oh, deficits don't matter. They don't cause inflation. Well, I would agree with them don't cause inflation, but you know what? When you're paying $900 billion on interest, something's got to get cut, and they're going to cut social programs because they won't cut their war spending because they love their wars, at least Biden the Democrat does. You know, they got three of them going now. Oh, three. We're the fourth in pro, in planning, you know. That's Taiwan. Perpetual wars, forever wars. That cost us a fortune. And we got nothing to show for it. Nothing except wondering whether your kids and grandkids are going to live a full life. Because the guys running these wars, you know, these crazy neocons, you know, they got one speed forward, <laughs> no reverse. Their policies turn out disastrous, they double down. Yeah, make it even worse. And then their marionette there called Joe Biden, you know, they're just playing that guy, you know, he's, you know, he's the guy they like because he's easy to manipulate, you know, I mean, he can't even walk off stage. Anyway, uh, they love it with him. He's perfect. Okay, so let's not go there further. That's the topic for another show. <clears throat> Point being that, uh, you know, the U.S. economy isn't looking all that great. 
inflation is not coming down and won't, well, it'll fluctuate around where it is. And the Fed won't raise interest rates anymore because it's an election year. And it won't raise it because, you know, the commercial real estate market is very weak and higher rates are going to cause defaults there and particularly the housing market, maybe the warehousing market, but uh, I mean, the office market. Yeah, for sure. And if that happens, uh, who owns the debt on most of uh, the office building market? Well, your regional banks. Remember those guys? They almost went under here a year ago. They're still very weak. And every once in a while, one of them goes down, like Community Bank of New York recently. So they can't raise rates anymore. They'll precipitate even worse commercial real estate bust, which will then drag more commercial regional, smaller regional banks down. And the Fed will have to throw more money at them. I think the Fed's already threw $500 billion at the uh, regional banking system. It's going to have to, you know, to keep it from collapsing. It's going to have to throw more. So uh, no rate increases further because of that. But, you know, keeping it rates at the current level may have the same effects. May take more time, but it may have the same effect. Okay, what have I promised to look at? What's happening in the other economies of the world? Well, Japan in recession. Yeah, Germany in recession. France no growth, flat. UK in recession. China slowing down. Well, we'll talk about China separately here, but let's look at Japan. Okay, Japan, last half of last year, its economy contracted both quarters. Yeah, negative. You know, the, the rule of thumb definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. You know, that's called the technical recession. Okay, well, Japan is in a recession, right? By the way, corporate profits are at record levels. And the stock market over there is at record levels. Well, how can you be in recession and have record profits in, in stocks? Well, they raise prices. Same process is going on here, right? Price gouging and other factors. Corporate, uh, you know, the economy's not growing, so that means they're not selling more stuff. You know, it's not volume sales increasing profits. No, it's price increases. You can have a, a profit increase with a contracting economy. All you need is more inflation. We'll give it to you. There's only three ways to increase profits, folks. There's sell more of the stuff, raise the price of this stuff, or cut your costs, meaning wages. And corporations, the biggies, are doing all three especially price increases. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so Japan is down. Consumer spending is down. Right. Prices are rising faster than wages, so consumer spending, uh, real real incomes are, are declining, and um, as a result, consumer spending is down. Uh, what about Europe? What about Europe? Right. Uh, well, as I said, Germany contracting the last two quarters. France 
says it's zero growth the last two quarters. Look, it's almost impossible to get perfectly zero growth. You know, it means they're fudging the numbers, in my opinion. It's probably a very modest one-tenth of one percent or something. They, uh, well, we can fudge that. They can't lie about you know, a, a big number, but it, you know, they can fudge one-tenth of one percent. Anyway, who knows? France is down. UK contracted the last six months as well, coming off of a 2022 GDP that was a, a very modest contraction. So you've got the 18 months of contraction in the UK economy. Oh, but the UK is saying, hey, you know, we're going to go to war with Russia. Let's prepare to go to war with Russia, right? Hell, the UK military is a joke. It's a joke, right? They can't even get sailors, you know, to run their ships. The ships are in port because they can't, you know, haven't been able to recruit sailors. Yeah. I, I think they got like 40,000 total in their army, 40,000. Their planes can't fly because they can't get pilots. No. I mean, UK is a military joke. Oh, but they, you know, they still think they got an empire. All right. By the way, you know, let me digress a little bit on the on you on the UK. Remember Boris Johnson, you know, former PM, Prime Minister, one of the biggest hawks about the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Well, there was a tentative agreement, apparently, between Ukraine and Russia a month after the war started in March 2022. They had a tentative, there was negotiations, quiet negotiations going on. Once once the Russians invaded, you know, and they took a bunch of land there, uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, met with them and they uh, had this meeting in Istanbul, right? And they had a tentative agreement. And then, uh, I mean, it was a good deal for them. Russia said, okay, you can keep these provinces in Ukraine, just give them more autonomy, you know, let them use their language, etc. cetera. Uh, and they thought it was a pretty good deal. Apparently, Ukraine negotiators. But Boris Johnson flew in. He wasn't a PM at the time. You know, he flew into Kiev when he heard this was going on, and he convinced Zelensky, president of Ukraine, to scuttle it. By the way, I wrote an article on my blog summarizing the, the negotiations, which were part of, of a, a summary of Putin's Tucker Carlson speech. Very interesting. Go, you know, go check it out on my blog. Plus... Some other uh, guests have written about, uh, you know, that whole event, the Istanbul negotiations. Anyway, you know, you got Boris Johnson and the Brits, you know, a main cause of the continuation of that war in Ukraine, which is now increasingly being revealed as, as a failure here. The Russians are beginning to run all over the, the eastern Ukraine. <clears throat> anyway, that's another topic. <clears throat> okay, so uh, the EU itself, the Eurozone area, uh, 
Third quarter, a contraction. Fourth quarter, nothing. Yeah. By the way, you know, you got to, when you're talking about GDP, you got to talk about, uh, distinguish be, between whether you're annualizing your number or you're looking month to month. You know, Europe provides month to month data. You know, how much did the economy grow this month compared to the previous month? Now, that's a month to month. If you analyze it like the U.S. does, it takes that month to month and multiplies it by 12 roughly, right, to get a bigger number. Looks better, right? Looks better to say, oh, I got a 2% GDP growth or two-tenths of a percent GDP growth last month. Right? It looks better to say, oh, it's 2.5. Okay. I mean, the better indicator is month to month, I think. But however you look at it, Europe, UK, Japan, Eurozone, Germany, France, they're all down. What about China? Well, China is slowing. China is definitely slowing down. Uh, annualized, last half of last year, it's like a 5% growth rate. Month to month, it's like a 1% growth in each of those quarters, third and fourth quarter of last year. But if you look at the property sector in China, really in trouble, really unstable. You know. Home sales was a big sector uh, of driving uh, China's GDP. That was 25% of GDP. How much is it in the U.S.? Well, housing is about 5%, 4 to 5% of GDP. But, uh, you know, in China, it was 25%. Uh, well, it's, it's significantly, uh, significantly come down. It was, you know, at its peak, it was like, 1.5 trillion yuan, which is a Chinese currency, in 2021, fourth quarter, 1.5 trillion. Uh, a trillion yuan is about $140 billion. But now, it's only 0.25 in the fourth quarter, 23. So, in, in other words, it's like contracted home sales that virtually come to a stop in China. What is that? That's like one-sixth of what, what it was, one-sixth. You know, in the U.S., it's down 40%. What this means in China, it's down like 85%. The housing market, residential housing market, because of the instability. Uh, that's, a, a, you know, a big potential black swan, financial black swan, uh, that uh, Chinese uh, property markets. Uh, and what's even more important going on in China now is you're seeing deflation occurring across the board. Deflation in home prices, in uh, goods prices, and, and uh, well, services prices are barely uh, growing, but goods prices and home prices, you know, are uh, contracting. It's the worst contraction in home prices uh, since 2009 going on in China, and it's been going on for four months now. Producer prices, what the producers' companies pay for what they buy before they make consumer products, right? Uh, that's been contracting. Producer prices have been falling for 16 months in a row. Now, 
deflation, actual contracting of prices, not slowing of the increase rate of prices. That's called disinflation, right? Got inflation, disinflation, slowing increase, deflation, actual contraction is very risky, very serious thing, right? Because if prices are falling, think about it. Prices are falling, you're a consumer. You're going to go out and buy now because the prices are falling. No, you're going to wait and see. Well, maybe they'll fall further. So it has an effect of dampening consumption. At the same time, it dampens the business investment. Because right? businesses, when they plan, you know, am I going to increase production or a new product line or something, I got to know whether if I introduce this product or expand, I'm going to be able to sell it. Right? And uh, what my costs are going to be. Right? But it, if you got in deflation, that means I can sell it only for less. Well, that makes my profit margin really you know, precarious. So I, I'm going to just wait instead of expanding or a new product line and hiring. And I'm, I'm going to wait to see what happens. So it slows down business investment as well as consumption. Deflation's, you know, a very serious thing for the economy. And that's where uh, China is right now. Very serious thing. Okay. Um, Let's see, what else can we say about the world economy? Well, the Congressional Budget Office came out with a, a, a report this week, uh, and it said, oh, immigration is good in the U.S. By the way, two and a half million people last year crossed the border illegally, and we have a net growth of immigration, 3.3 million, which compares the previous decade, 2010-19, of about 900,000 average immigrants a year. Now we got 3.3 million. In other words, it's three and a half times what it was. And uh, the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, you know, estimates that uh, this year, another 3.3 million, 2025, another 3.3 million, 2.6 million in 26, and then it goes down a little bit. Well, who the hell knows? Five years out, but in other words, we got it. We do have a massive influx going on of illegal aliens in this country. You know, there is some truth to that. Uh, and the CBO projects that oh, that will reduce wages by 1.7 percent, lower wages overall. Yeah, so it does particularly at the, the lower end of the wage structure in the U.S., it does have an impact. All the excess labor supply of, uh, you know, uneducated labor, uh, mostly. And it's not it's not from Mexico, by the way. It's, you know, from Central America, from Venezuela, from Asia, from Africa. Even Ukrainians are coming in through. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's a problem, according to uh, CBO, and it will reduce wages and per capita income of 0.8%. So it's a problem. But CBO says that's good. That's good because all these other workers are going to, you know, produce things and generate more GDP. Well, if they got jobs. But what if you got a recession and these people don't have jobs? They don't add anything to GDP. Uh, CBO assumes all of these 10, 11 million people coming in are going to work. 
they're going to have jobs. Well, at the same time, we're laying off people. You know, what about this tech? All these layoffs in tech, what is that? Well, I'll tell you, their tech companies are clearing the decks to hire AI people. So we've got hundreds of thousands of tech jobs disappearing, and it kind of confirms Goldman Sachs Bank's forecast that AI is going to cost 300 million job losses worldwide. That's still a lot in the U.S. So tech companies are laying off, and they'll hire higher skilled people, and they'll probably have to bring them in from offshore. Uh, and at the same time, we get all these other people coming in at low wages. Okay, so that's just a, a little uh, final commentary on uh, immigration. All right, I'm out of here.